Um, right in front of me on my uh, desk, I've got a, a quote on the wall from um, the great missionary Hudson Taylor. He was the founder of the China Inland Mission and was really the guy who brought the gospel to China. And the quote right in front of me on my desk is this. It says, there are three stages to every great work of God. First, it's impossible. Then it's difficult. Then it's done. That's the quote in front of my, uh, on my desk in front of me. And I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah would have at least agreed with the first part of that statement. It's impossible. I mean, are you kidding me? Descendants more numerous than the stars? Uh, when uh, I'm 100 and my wife Sarah is 90 years old, you've got to be joking. Tell him he's dreaming. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. Uh, But into that uh, doubting, into that unbelief, uh, the Lord God asks them a powerful question that he asks us this morning, and it's in verse 14 of chapter 18, and that is this. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Uh, James O. Fraser uh, walked in the footsteps of Hudson Taylor and in the spirit of his quote that I shared with you. And at the age of 22, he left his hometown of London uh, in 1908 and he took a boat to mainland China with the intention of reaching the Lisu people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who'd never heard it before. Uh, as soon as he met the Lisu, he absolutely fell in love with them. They were a colourful, beautiful, singing people group and yet they were also poor and weak and despised. Uh, It was a very mountainous region and so it meant that he had to hike from village uh, to village at great uh, pain to himself and he took a translator along with him and slowly as he shared the gospel he started to accumulate converts to Christ. But as quickly as they converted to Christ they would fall away. Uh, The more he shared the gospel, the more they would convert to Christ, but the more that they would fall away. He finally began to realise that because it was such a patriarchal society, uh, it wasn't enough for members of families to be converted. The whole family would need to be converted to Christ in order for it to stick. And that made his work so much more difficult and challenging. And not only that, He discovered over the years that um, when they converted to Christ, they would have to burn all of their idols. They couldn't leave a single one left. They couldn't save anything. They all had to go if they were to convert to Christ. Well, it was getting so difficult that he decided to um, try and start a prayer meeting back in England where he would send weekly prayer requests to this prayer group. He would walk out uh, of one of the huts in one of these villages and by candlelight he would scratch out these letters of prayer requests every week to send back to a prayer meeting in London where eight or nine Christians would read his letters and pray for that, that the gospel would reach the Lisu through James O. Fraser. He used an illustration for what he was doing of um, the early farmers in New England in America where um, if they went west and they settled on a piece of land, if they, had, if they stayed on that piece of land for longer than 10 years, then at that 10-year mark, the land would become legally and officially theirs. And he used that as a kind of metaphor that when the farmer moved onto a piece of land and with him moving literally to the Lisu to live with them and to reach with them, that's like the prayer of faith. In other words, um, you haven't got it yet. It's not yours, but one day it will be. 
as you persevere and pray and preach. At one time he wrote back to his prayer group and he said, I'm praying for 200 Lisu families to convert to Christ. And he invited them to join with him in praying for those 200 families if they felt they were able. He said, you ask me why 200 families if there are more than 2,000? And he said, I don't have faith for 2,000. I only have faith for 200. And he points to, I think, a lesson of faith. And that is, I think faith is like a spiritual muscle. Uh, If you uh, haven't got any muscle, I was going to say like me, but obviously I have lots of muscle. Uh, And and if you haven't got many and and straight away you try and bench press 100 kilos, what's going to happen? You're going to injure yourself, aren't you? And you're certainly not going to be coming back to bench press the next day or the next day or for a very long time after that. But if you stick with it like a good exercise regime, incremental, day by day, week by week, month by month, persevering, praying, and you build up those spiritual muscles, then eventually you'll really be able to do some heavy lifting by faith. but it wasn't to be for poor old James O'Fraser. After five years of tireless working and tireless praying, there was still just a tiny little handful of converts to Christ. So he decided to write to the director of the China Inland Mission and ask him if he should be reassigned because he's really not that good at this and he's really not having much progress. Uh, We've been talking about how great faith keeps two things clearly in view. Um, That firstly, the thing we keep in view are our hopes and dreams that have been tested and refined by the purposes and the power and the promises of God. So we're not talking about a new Ferrari or a well-paid job. No, not those kinds of dreams. We keep our, um, in view our hopes and dreams that are in line with the purposes and the promises and the power of God. That's the first thing we keep in view. But the next thing that we need to keep in view, that great faith keeps in view, is the reality of our circumstances in front of us which for Abraham and Sarah was that Sarah was barren, Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah was 90 years old. That was the reality for Abraham and Sarah. And the reality for James O'Fraser was that he wasn't making any progress, or at least hardly any progress, and nowhere near as high as his hopes and dreams of 200 families coming to Christ. So he was ready to give up. It's impossible. But remember... That's the first stage of any great work of God. First, it's impossible. And so I believe that God would have spoken to James O'Fraser in that moment as he spoke to Abraham and Sarah in chapter 18, verse 14, and he is speaking to us this morning and asked the question, is anything too wonderful for me? It's there in verse 14. Is anything too wonderful for me? Well, friends... I want to come back to the story of James O'Fraser later in the sermon, Uh, but this morning I want to look with you at the story of Abraham and Sarah that we're seeing in chapter 18 and then concluded in chapter 21. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that God's grace is so glorious that it causes both the laughter of scoffing, that's what we see in chapter 18, and the laughter of grace, that's what we see 
in chapter 21. Friends, God's grace is so glorious that it causes the laughter of scoffing and the laughter of grace. So firstly, let's look at the laughter of scoffing in chapter 18. The background to the story is that Abraham has probably been hard at work all day. In fact, the whole camp has probably been hard throughout the morning in a hot uh, desert place working. And in the middle of the day, he's having a bit of a rest. He's having a siesta. He's having a shut shut eye uh, under the oaks of Mamre. And then he opens his eyes and there's these three glorious guests there to visit him. And he runs out to meet them. He bows down face to the ground and he says, can you please stay with us? Can you let me give you a bite to eat? This is good ancient Near East hospitality and yet it's on steroids because he, uh, this sleepy campsite um, that's in a siesta after a hard morning's work suddenly springs into a hive of activity where they cook up, go, he runs into Sarah, cooks some bread, um, get some yogurt together and, and let's kill the fattened calf and we're going to prepare a meal for these three glorious guests and the narrator tells us in verse 1 who one of the guests is did you see it in verse 1 there one of them is the Lord God Almighty of the universe El Shaddai friends this is the only time in the Old Testament where we see the Lord of the universe share a meal like this with one of his people with anyone it's the first and last time that he, would, that he would receive a meal and be there with one of his people. Until, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, came and shared meals with us. Friends, it's a picture of the intimacy and the friendship and the relationship that God wants to have with his people. A meal with Abraham. Which is why it's no mistake, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ wanted us to remember him week by week was by what? A meal, the body and the blood, the bread and the wine. It's the intimacy and the relationship that he wants to share with us. The God of the universe. But we quickly discover what the purpose of this visit is in the second section from verse 9. During the after-dinner conversation, they've had some great fresh bread and and yogurt they've filled themselves with this um, cooked calf and now it's time to get down to business verse 9 they said to him where's your wife Sarah and he said there in the tent then one said and remember I will is the language of promise I will surely return to you in due season and you and your wife Sarah shall have a son Remember the two great things, things that great faith keeps in view. Firstly, it's the promises and the purposes and the power of God. In a year from now, your wife Sarah will have a son, descendants more numerous than the stars. That's the first thing that faith keeps in view. But the next thing that faith keeps in view is what? The reality, which the narrator tells us in verse 11. Have a look. Juxtaposed right against this promise. Now Abraham and Sarah were old advanced in age it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women which to me is a very cryptic way of saying that she was well past menopause that's the reality and that's where the laughter of scoffing comes in God's grace is too glorious for that you see God had already made this promise to Abraham in chapter 17 
God had promised that Sarah would have a child and, and God had told Abraham that he was to call that child Isaac in chapter 17. And, and guess what he did in verse, verse 17 when he heard God say that? Abraham fell face down, he laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Uh, this is what the teenagers would call Rothel rolling on the floor laughing, literally, ruffle. He had a bit of a ruffle when he heard God make such a ridiculous promise. It's the laughter of scoffing. But isn't it interesting that by the time we get to chapter 18, it looks like this promise of a son called Isaac is news to Sarah, even though Abraham knew about it. God has spoken to Abraham about it. It's news to Sarah in verse 12 by, by the looks. She, it says, so Sarah laughed to herself. Now it's her turn to have a ruffle, saying, after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? So Abraham already knew about God's promise and the timing. Even he gets speci as specific as the timing of God's promise of a child. And he'd already had a big laugh. But had he been unable to convince Sarah of this incredibly good news? Or did he actually refrain from passing it on so not to raise false hopes in Sarah? It's too glorious. Either way, she thought it was some kind of joke, some kind of cruel hoax. And so she laughed. You see, friends, sometimes God's good news just seems too good to be true. And so instead, we go to where's comfortable and we become cynical. I think most of us have got cynicism down to a fine art, don't you? New South Wales Premier Jack Lang once said, Always back the horse named self-interest, son. It'll be the only one trying. It sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds so wise, so insightful, so clever. And yet 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love always hopes. Love always trusts. It sounds so naive. That's because we're cynical. Cynicism says, oh, that would have happened anyway. There's no wonder. There's no transcendence. It's too glorious. It can't be real. Probably my favourite depiction of cynicism, as well as its opposite, which is childlike faith and wonder and delight, that comes from C.S. Lewis. Uh, in Prince Caspian. Uh, Peter, Susan and Edmund and Lucy are lost in the woods and Aslan, the glorious lion, appears to them, or, or at least to Lucy. He, he appears to them in his glory to help lead them out of the woods to the place they're going. But the only one who sees them is Lucy, the youngest, the child, the naive one. And it says, 
When she saw him, her face had changed completely and her eyes shone. Friends, that's glory. That's wonder. That's transcendence. It goes on. Do you really mean, began Peter. Where do you think you saw him? asked Susan. Don't talk like a grown-up, said Lucy, stamping her foot. I didn't think I saw him. I saw him. But nobody believed. For Peter and Susan and Edmund, Aslan was too good to be true. And the same went for Sarah in our story. (laughs) You've got to be joking. It's too good to be true. Friends, can you see how God's grace is so glorious that it causes in us the laughter of scoffing? I don't know what you'd do if you promised your loved one an incredibly glorious and expensive gift and you sincerely meant to give it to them and then they just fell down on their face laughing at you. But I'd be tempted to take it back. Fine. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe I'm that good and gracious, then forget about it. I, I won't give it to you at all. You're laughing in your face. Thank God that he's nothing like me and that his grace is so much more glorious than my own because that's not how he responds. Remember doubting Thomas in the New Testament? He couldn't believe that his beautiful saviour, his Lord and his friend that he had spent three years with and fell in love with could possibly be risen from the dead. He couldn't believe it. And so our gracious, tender, loving and kind Lord Jesus came to him. And he said, put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do you see how the glory of God's grace challenges our unbelief? We tend to think that God will only answer prayers if we have enough faith for him to answer them. But here we see God answering the prayers of people who have absolutely no faith. How gracious, how good, how great he is. But instead of being open and honest with God, like we've seen Abraham do, pouring out his his fears and his doubts and his unbelief, and like a child going, Daddy, Daddy, what's going on? We kind of hide away like Sarah hid in the tent, hiding away her doubts. But the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and the Lord God calls Sarah out to get real with him. Because he wants us to be real with him. But she's too afraid to be real in verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh yes, you did laugh. Point one, God's grace is so glorious that it causes the laughter of scoffing, chapter 18. But it's also so glorious that it causes the laughter of grace in chapter 21. But before you go there, I just want you to note in verse 12, I find it really interesting, chapter 18, that instead of Sarah saying, shall I have a child, what does she say? Shall I have 
pleasure. And in verse 14, when God asks the question, he doesn't say, is anything too hard for the Lord? What does he say? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And I think the reason for that is because this is about so much more than having a kid. This is about having pleasure. This is about our hopes and our dreams and our deepest longings and our deepest desires and not being sure as to whether or not God actually will meet those, far be it from us, exceed them beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. When God made promises to Abraham, remember in chapter 15 of numerous descendants, he didn't say, Abraham, I want you to think of the biggest number you can think of, you know, like with the most zeros that you can possibly think of. Well, that's how many kids you're going to have. No, he didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He said, go out of your tent, look up at the stars. One of the most glorious sights and scenes that the human eye has ever seen. Breathe it in, take it in, try to count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. You see, God's grace is so glorious. You see, if the main point of this story was simply that God is great or God is powerful, then it would make sense if God said, is anything too hard for me? And that is what he's saying, but he's saying so much more because this story is not just about God's greatness. It's a story about God's goodness and God's surpassing glory and God's grace. So he doesn't just say, is anything too hard for me? He says, is anything too wonderful for me? You see, Sarah is not just doubting whether God is great enough to give her a child. She's doubting his character of whether he's gracious and good and glorious. And God says, is anything too wonderful for me? I I looked up a dictionary. Wonder is a feeling of amazement and admiration caused by something beautiful, remarkable, or unfamiliar. And of course, wonderful is to be full of wonder, inspiring delight or pleasure or admiration. And God says, is anything too wonderful for me? Well, you've heard that he who laughs last laughs the loudest. That's what we see in chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. It's a scene filled with laughter, will you look at it? It's the laughter of grace. It's the laughter of God delivering, not just on his greatness, but on his grace, his glory, and his goodness. Verse 1, the Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Verse 3, they called him Isaac, which means laughter. They called him laughter. And then verse 6, now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears this will laugh with me. And she said, who would ever have said to Abraham and Sarah that they would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. There was laughter everywhere. Abraham and Sarah laughed as they cuddled their little beautiful baby called laughter. And baby Isaac cooed and laughed in his mother's arms. And the whole camp had a chuckle and a laugh at the glory of God's grace. And heaven smiled upon them and the Lord said, Is anything too wonderful for me? 
maybe there really is a happy ending. Maybe we really can never set our hopes so high. G.K. Chesterton wrote a little essay about why fairy tales fill us with such wonder and delight. It's called The Ethics of Elfland. He said that there are always three elements to these great stories. And the first element is that there's an acknowledgement of hopelessness and doom. Something has gone terribly wrong. The second element is that there's always an acknowledgement of a world beyond, of some amazing power and deep mysteries. And the third element, finally, is that there's some heroic key, some way in which unlooked for or unanticipated, the door is open and they bring these two worlds, the the world of uh, the reality of doom and the world of wonder and power and this heroic key brings these two worlds into contact and solves the impossible situation. So in Beauty uh, and the Beast, there's an impossible situation. You've got a beauty, you've got this beast. And the heroic key in the story is, is this unlikely reality that Beauty sacrifices herself for this ugly, hideous beast. And she hands herself over to what is should be a nightmare, but in so doing, she unlocks the key and the power that turns the beast into a man. Well, what G.K. Chesterton is saying in this essay is that the gospel is the ultimate story of wonder from which all other stories derive their glory. So today, first of all, you have a God who will definitely do what he said, as he said it, when he said it. El Shaddai is anything too wonderful for me, but then at the same time, you have an impossible situation. Sarah is barren, she's 90 years old, and her husband is 100 years old. Old, But then there's the heroic key at the end, which is a baby boy called laughter. The gospel, in the gospel we're told that there is a God who is good and glorious and gracious and great, but we're told that there's an impossible situation and that is that our sin separates us from him and our rebellion. But then there's the heroic key that nobody was expecting the son of the promise. And who's the son of the promise? The one that Isaac points to. Friends, there was no way, possible way, that Mary could have a child. There was absolutely no way. You know why, right? Well, look, just the angel Gabriel in all of his glory appeared to her, dazzling, mighty angel. You're going to have a baby. She said, how will this be, since I am a virgin? But a few months later, the son of laughter and the saviour of the world was born. And the angels sang and they rejoiced and they smiled and heaven smiled and the Lord said again, is anything too wonderful for me? Then the baby boy grew up and in John chapter 3 had a conversation with Really an adult, highly educated, you know, the the typical cynic um, sceptic called Nicodemus. And Jesus starts talking to him about being born again. Not not having a baby, but being born again. (laughs) What? 
Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? (laughs) God's grace is so glorious that it causes the laughter of scoffing. But Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. It is too glorious. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said, you must be born again. He's asking Nicodemus, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Friends, God's grace is so glorious that it causes both the laughter of scoffing, as we've seen, but ultimately, it causes the laughter of grace. That's what Sarah's experience was in this story, and it was also the experience of James O'Fraser, that missionary who went to reach the Lisu. Before he decided to leave, he thought he would have one last go one last trip. He took a local father and his young son and the first village that he got to was one that he'd got to many times before and preached the gospel to many times before and so he did what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1 to the Corinthians. He didn't use any eloquence, he didn't use any fine speech, he would completely lost any confidence in himself and so he just put it out plainly to them, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ went to bed the next morning as they were going off to the next village the young translator rushed into his hut and said there's a family that wants to convert he wasn't so sure he went into the hut talked about it with the family he did the same thing he started putting up barriers in front of them you know you'll have to burn all of your idols this is going to be really hard you might get thrown out of the community he went negative upon negative upon negative and the man just kept saying yes 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 we want it we're in he stayed for another two weeks preaching the gospel and another six families came to christ and then village after village after village, after village, for the next two months. 130 families gave their lives to Christ. 600 people burned their idols and become devoted followers of Jesus. Today, this very day, there are 1.5 million Lisu people in the world. Guess how many of them are followers of Jesus? A million of followers of Christ. Uh, when a young Li Su was interrogated by the communists, Chinese Communist Party, he said to the interrogator, Christianity has become a part of our flesh and bones and it will not easily be taken out of us. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? I think Abraham and Sarah and James O'Fraser would have actually agreed with all of Hudson Taylor's statement that there are three works, three stages to any great work of God. First, it's impossible. Then it's difficult. And then it's done. 
And so, friends, how are we to respond to a God and a grace and a glory like this? In the words of the hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open our hearts to you, our glorious great God and Heavenly Father, Help us to see that you are supremely trustworthy and you are good and glorious and great beyond our wildest imaginations. Help us, Father, to hear the laughter of grace in the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the true and better Isaac. Holy Spirit, would you fill our mouths with the laughter of grace and our tongues with songs of joy? May it be said among our neighbours, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. Our hearts are, are filled with joy. Come Holy Spirit, help us to shed the cynicism and to trust.